Go ahead and turn to Romans 5, my favorite place in all of Scripture, Romans 5. It, every week, every week, I have to have this battle with myself of whether or not I want to talk about Romans 5, because I know y'all get sick of it if I will do it every week, but I, I would do it every week for the rest of my life, Romans 5, if I could, because um, there's a lot. There's a lot here, and uh, this, is, this is Paul's, um, if you give him one section, like Paul, you've got to pick one section out of all your writings. Now, of course, there were no numbers and verses in his writings, um, but... If you take one section, what would you want us to know about what you think about anything? I personally believe it would be either Romans 5 or Romans 8. And if he could have both, probably both. So, uh, but today we're going to talk about Romans 5. So I'm actually going to just read it, and then, um, and then we will talk about it. So hopefully you're there. Romans, New Testament, right after Acts. Here we go. It is after Acts, right? Am I, yeah, yeah, okay. I started to second-guess second myself for a minute. Verse 1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Whew, that's a lot. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But this is the verse. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God? We might get into that today. Maybe not. I don't know, but just saying with me. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, my favorite section in all the scripture right here. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin was not reckoned where there is no or was no law. 14. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the trespass of Adam, who is, this is a big verse, uh, section, who is a type of the one who was to come. 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely, hear the language Paul uses here. If many died through one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift, listen, is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment followed one trespass, brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. Paul really, he starts to dig in, almost like you take a knife and, just, and then just drive it in. This is what Paul starts to do right here, 17. If because the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through the one, through that one, much more surely, one of Paul's favorite phrases in this text, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Here comes another turn of the knife. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. Here's another twist. 19. For just as the one, by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Another turn. But law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied, but where sin increased, grace increased or abounded all the more. 21. So that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is so scandalous and it is so grace-filled that Paul has to follow up that entire chapter by this. He says, verse 1 in chapter 6, What then are we to say? Should we keep sinning in order that this grace may abound? By no means. How can those who have died to sin continue to live by it? So the the gospel in Romans 5 is so counter the religious argument of karma that Paul has to come around on the back end of it and add a caveat saying, if this grace is so good, if this grace is so covering that sin at its worst was nothing but a measuring rod for grace to say it is better than, if that's the case, then shouldn't we just, should we just keep sinning more and more and more so that grace may abound? And he says, certainly not. But why? Not because that's going to disqualify you from grace, but because you have died to sin. Therefore, why would you live in something that you are dead to? So Paul's argument in this entire section is not morals. It's not do good, get good, do bad, get bad, etc. Paul's entire argument is you did bad and God came in and superseded it all the more. He says that over and over, much more surely, much more surely, all the more. He comes in with grace and says where your sin increased, Grace was increasing more so, so that in the death of Christ, that which is inferior, sin, could be superseded and undone in that which is superior, which is grace. And if that's the case, why would you live in anything but grace? Because sin has been done away with. So for you to live in sin is for you to live in a lie because it's dead. It's gone. It's the equivalent of me saying Einstein is going to preach the sermon Sunday. Einstein's dead. Right? That's insane. Obviously, Einstein's not preaching a sermon. I don't even know if Einstein was saved. So that's, you know, whatever. But, right? So Paul is saying sin and the sin nature and any other thing that came from Adam is dead and gone. And how was it dead and gone? Because the second Adam took his place and did something much more surely. And he says, the gift is not like the trespass. If the gift were like the trespass, that would mean the gift has come in order to meet the trespass at its level. But the gift is not like the trespass. The gift is much more surely than the trespass. So it not only steps on it and crunches it under its foot, it completely obliterates it in you and I, which is exactly why Paul goes on in chapter six to say, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised, you've been raised into new life. The argument is not do good, get good, whatever. The argument is you died with Christ. So why would you live as the one who died when you could and should live as that which is alive? The verse I want to focus on today within all of this is verse number eight, when Paul says that God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God proves his love for us. What was on the mind of God in the incarnation was not appeasing angry justice. Okay, this is a lot of review, but just stick with me. What was on the mind of God in the incarnation was proving his love for us. That's what Paul just says. Therefore, for God, 
what defines us as lost is not what we've done, but what we do not know. Hang with me. If sin, hemartia Greek, is a misplaced identity, what happens when we are misplaced? Of course, we're not doing things that aren't like us. Bad actions always flow from a confused heart and mind, 100%. You don't sin because you think sin is amazing, right? Like you don't, you know, a lot of young people, you don't look at things you shouldn't be looking at because you think, man, this is just amazing. Man, I should really, this is going to bless me. You know what I mean? I mean, just be real. You don't do that. You don't do that. There's something in you, whether or not it's been addressed or whether or not you know it or whether or not this might trigger something. There's something in you that does not believe you're worth the magnitude of love that you're actually worth, which is, number one, real. Okay? And number two, so much more than self-pleasing. And because you've come into agreement with an idea that you are only worth a cheap version of love, which isn't love at all, you begin to act out of that which you have come into agreement with. But you don't just make the decision, I want to do something bad. Nobody wakes up in the morning that has ever murdered anybody and says, you know what, I, want to, I think I want to go murder somebody today. I, say, yeah, I just think, you know, nobody does that, right? They come into agreement with a lie that produces fruit of the action. So all of our bad actions, all of our sin flows from a confused heart and mind. So to deal with the actions without dealing with the reason for the actions is gross negligence of love at best. Because we project our ideas onto God, it makes sense that in a society that judges people on what they've done and condemns them without usually ever giving a second thought as to why they've done the things that they've done, we have an idea of a God that does the exact same thing. All of our conversations about what happened on the cross typically revolve around the fact that God is just and God, therefore, is a just God, so just that injustice needed to be punished, and that injustice is, of course, moral sin. All of our conversations around why did Jesus, if you just Google it, why did Jesus have to die? Almost every conversation that we have about this in the West, okay, especially in America, almost every conversation we have always revolves around this. God is just, we were unjust. And therefore, something had to happen so that injustice could be punished and therefore the just God could be justified. Okay? This is all, all of our conversations revolve around just. We begin identifying with God as just. As if that is the very thing that defines him. Now, of course, God is just. But if justice defines him, our idea and our idea of justice at that, by the way, then whatever love God is must submit to the justice that we think God is. I want you to hang with me. If God is just and that is the primary essence of his being, then whatever love he is must submit to the fact that he is just and not just on his terms, just on our terms. Not just on what God thinks is just, but just on what we think is just. Therefore, God must be the idea of justice that we think is justice because we got it all figured out. So whatever love God is must submit to that. But that isn't what scripture says at all. Scripture tells us that God is love and love isn't something that God does. It says that it is who God is. Therefore, whatever we are to surmise about God's justice must submit to what we dogmatically know about God, which is God is love and not passive love and not love that does this and just says, do whatever you want and I'll still love you. Just keep going, keep doing whatever you want. I won't look, I promise. That's not love. It's love that looks at you in the mud, that looks at you at your lowest and worst and stares it in the eyes and says, I'm not moving until you come back home. That love. It's love that refuses to let you settle for death. But it is not love that when you decide to get down in the mud says, I'm gonna wipe my hands. I warned you, 
I warned you. I told you not to do it. I told you not to say, say the things that you said to that person. I told you not to do those actions that you did. And you've gotten to a point where it is far beyond my love. I'm going to wipe my hands clean and you're on your own, buddy. That would be just in the American system of justice. But the scripture, when first John, when John goes to write about who God is, of all the things that John could have said about who God is, of all the ways that John could have described Jesus and all the ways he could have described God within Jesus, John makes the statement emphatically that God is love and those who do not love must not know God because God is love. So the question is, for us, is what is justice within love? Because we believe God has a justice that has been stripped of all love. Let's first look at the basic definition of justice. Basic definition. Justice means just treatment or fairness. Okay? So you might say, see, God being just means God had to treat us fairly. We sinned, so we deserve separation. Therefore, God is just in doing what he did. But it is not us that defines God's justice. It is God that defines God's own justice. Therefore, what does it mean for God to be treated fairly? That's the question of justice. For God's justice, the question is not how do we deserve to be treated? Because in the very beginning, God did not create us apart from himself. Let us make mankind in our image and likeness is a declaration that humanity has been created, included in Father, Son, and Spirit in that relationship. Apart from him, John says, nothing exists. Only in and through and for Colossians 1 him, all things exist. So existence itself is only defined as union with Father, Son, and Spirit, no matter what you've ever done with that. Okay? So for us to say that justice can be defined by us rather than God is to view the entire narrative backwards. We don't get to define anything as it relates to not only God's identity, but our identity. Only God himself does, which is the entire point of Genesis. The entire point of the story is to say, you are his. You are not your own. You are his. And anything that you do in your life, all is done within the reality that you're his. Y'all good? So I'll ask you the question. What does it mean for God to be treated fairly? Now, this is a loaded question. And I'm not talking about justice all day. But, but we need to address this. This is a loaded question because we know in the beginning God created us out of desire. Okay, God wanted and wants us. And as a good father, God loves and desires his kids. God loves and desires us. We were created out of the overflow of father, son, and spirit. Totally review, but just to remind you, God does not desire separation in any way, shape, or form from his kids ever. He desires only union. This is what 2 Peter 3, 9 reminds us, that it is God's will that none should perish and all come to repentance. What is he saying? Peter is saying it is God's will that none of his kids would wander away. So, therefore, because that's God's will, God is patient. That's what Peter says. 2 Peter 3. God is not slow as some measure slowness. God is patient so that his kids come home. For deeper evidence into this, look at the entirety of the New Testament, of the Old Testament, excuse me. Israel is chosen as God's people in the Old Testament. And do you know how they spend the rest of the Old Testament under the revelation of their God's people? How do they spend the rest of the Old Testament? Running from God. You want, if you want to give a synopsis of the entire Old Testament, here it is. God chooses Israel. Israel runs from God. That's the Old Testament. And then throughout, there's moments where they come back and then they run. And there's a good judge and they run. And then there's David and then right after David, they run. You know what I mean? So this is the Old Testament, running from God. However, we know the story. How does God respond? What does he do in response to Israel's disobedience? Does he say, have your way? 
Here's how God responds. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Why? What did, what did Israel do for God himself to so join to human nature that he became it? Here's what they did. Ran. So, so we know the story. In response to disobedience, he becomes them, not only becomes them, dies as them, not only dies as them, redeems them and brings them home. And as he brings them home, he says, oh, by the way, I'm not just going to bring you home. All those pagans that you spent your entire generations rejecting, I'm bringing them home too. So I just, I need you, the Old Testament, Israel's chosen as God's people. They say, no, run. God's response is, I'm going to redeem you, and not only am I going to redeem you, I'm going to redeem all them too. So do the math. Because of Israel's running, the Gentiles come home. How does that math work? Unless God's desire from the very beginning was to bring Jew and Gentile home and our running had no power to change or determine what God already determined, Ephesians 1, before the foundations of the earth. Before you ever breathe the breath, God made the decision, I'm gonna bring my kids home. Before they ever have a chance to run, my kids are gonna be in my house. And that's the gospel. Now, here's where the wineskin thing comes in is because the old wineskin doesn't have that begin. You start to hear threads breaking. When the when the wine of the gospel, which is not really new wine, but it's really new wine for us. When the wine of the gospel begins to be poured out into these old religious wineskins, suddenly they begin to tear and burst. And do you know how religion responds to that? They respond to that by saying, well, this wineskin is breaking us. It must not be the wine, this wine is breaking. It must not be the wine that we were designed for. And they begin to pour it out. Because at least if we're not carrying wine, we won't break. And I'm telling you, the Lord, and this, and this is why people leave the church, and this is why people leave the faith, and this is why people become atheists. And all that. They're, they're looking for Jesus, and we've poured out all of our wine because we refuse to be stretched. And God is calling us to come back to a place where we can, with full integrity, say, pour out whatever you desire. And if it stretches me to the brink, I'm going to be so sure of my identity and my trust in you that I'll let it stretch me as far as it needs to stretch me so that it can mature in me and become that which the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the water covers the sea through. Is this too much? Okay, y'all lying. For deeper evidence of all of this, look at Colossians 1. This is what Paul says, okay? If God's desire for us is union, and God always gets what he wants, Psalm 115.3, for example, of many, if that's the case, then we might have in the past lived out of separation in our sin, but we were never truly separated. This is what John 1.2 says, that anything apart from God doesn't exist. Anything apart from God doesn't exist. This is what Paul says, Colossians 1. He says, you who were once estranged and hostile, listen, in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. You who were once hostile, some translations say enemies of God in your mind, he becomes flesh and reconciles you through his death. Reconciles what? The fact that in your mind, you were fully convinced that you were separated and enemies and hostile of God. But he, rather than proving you right, becomes flesh. Now, here's the thing. If he takes on human nature, he can't be an enemy or hostile or separated or estranged from it because he joins himself to it. So the lie is we live out of in our past the fact that we believe fully that we are apart from that which we could never be apart from. This is what reconciliation comes to do. Our separation was in our minds. That's what Paul says. And what is the message of both John the baptizer and Jesus? Here's the message. They preach both repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And repentance, metanoia in Greek, is a change of thinking. Why? Because you have bought into a lie of distance and separation because of what you've done and resulting in what you've done. But the truth is here, John 14, 6, and the way you're going to take hold of the truth is to let go of the lie. And how do you let go of the lie? Allow yourself to be embraced by that which is the truth. And what is the truth? John 14, Jesus. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Whatever we are to know about truth is Jesus himself, okay? What is the opposite of something that is true? It's a lie, right? It's false, okay? So apart from Jesus, all other realities of separation are by definition of Jesus Christ himself false because he is the way and he is the truth and he is the life. And the only way you get to the father is through him. Interesting, right? Interesting. Talked about this for the past few weeks. He's speaking this to an audience that believes the way they get to the father is by keeping the law perfectly. And by keeping the law perfectly, they make it to the father who is in the holy of holies. And the way they get there is by living so spotless that when they walk into the holy of holies, one time a year, one man on behalf of everybody else, they don't die. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Moses said, but I, I am the way. I'm the truth. And you can't get to the Father except me. See, we've taken all this and said, see, see, you know, Gentiles, we've become, honestly, we've become Old, the Old Testament Pharisees. Gentiles, see there, y'all can't, get, y'all can't get to the Father. Only we can. And Jesus is saying, no, y'all don't understand. The only way to the Father is through me. Now, here's what's interesting. John says, the word becomes flesh, which means flesh has made its way to the Father because the way is the Son who has become flesh and is to this day seated at the right hand of the Father as fully God and fully man now. So you and I are seated in heavenly places. Why? Because right now at this present moment, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, not only as fully God, but remaining for eternity as fully man. This is huge. The mission of God is not primarily to punish what we've done or what was done in a mind that bought into a lie. The mission of God was to reconcile the lie with the truth. It's not to punish acts of separation with a reality of separation. It's to punish the lie of separation itself and replace it within you and I with the truth of union. This is what reconciliation is. It's not God saying, you've done bad, I'm going to erase all the bad things you've done, and now you've got a clean slate, you better do good now. It's God coming in and saying, the mind that is hostile, the mind that is set on separation, I, by becoming flesh and taking it on and taking it all the way to death and then taking it all the way through death and into resurrection, am going to reconcile the lie with the truth. You and me are one. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you reject it or not, at the end of the day, the word became flesh and it did not consult you and I first. God did not say, is it okay if we do this? If we do this, what are you going to do with it? The word became flesh before any of us were born because God refuses to hear even our most exaggerated no and respond to it with what we want. God gets what he wants and what he wants is you. The primary issue of the gospel is not to deal with actions. The primary issue of the gospel is to deal with lies. Lies live on an inner mind and heart level. And if you deal with the lies, then guess what? You deal with the actions, okay? So God sets out on a journey to find us in a distant country of our lives and to tell us the truth. So God doesn't punish us for what we've done. God proves, Paul says, his love for us in that while we were still lost, he died for us. Now, how does his dying prove his love? 
How does his dying prove his love? Because he plants his feet in the fulfillment of all of our lies and delusions about us and him and proves the lie to be just that, a lie. In other words, as Jesus is dying on the cross, God himself dying the nails that we, not the father, the nails that we place through his hands as he's dying on the cross. What is one of the, he looks out and he says, what he said, father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Any of y'all done anything worse than kill God? I, I mean, I don't want to make light of it, but you know what I'm saying? Anybody else done worse? In the worst of who we are, Father, forget they don't know. They don't know. In other words, you have one idea of God that's caused all kinds of religion and running. But when you look into the eyes of God himself incarnate and he cries this out, all of our false ideas, all of our lies come crumbling down. And in these moments, he deals with the running by proving that we were never meant to run. In the Jewish mind of law, 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 law. As Jesus is dying and he looks out and says, Father, forgive them. Now, remember, what does the law say? The law says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, for example. So... In other words, the only way forgiveness, just one of many examples, can come through the law, the only way that forgiveness can come through the law is for those who just killed Jesus to themselves be killed. Right? Eye for an eye. And as they're killed, they're forgiven and they're made right with God. But at the cross, Jesus looks out at people who are still in the process of spitting in his face, who are still saying, man, this is all, look at what we've done. This is amazing. Here's the king of the Jews. And he looks at them in, right in the middle of it and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know. And in that moment, any part of you that is still holding on to law and order, hearing the declaration of God say, forgive them. For what? What did they do to deserve forgiveness? They don't know. And in that moment, the lie that there is all this stuff that I have to do to make my way back to God begins to be questioned. Maybe there's not. Maybe that man is the way that I'm forgiven now. Let's look even further. I'm not, I don't have much more. Into Romans 5. In verse 14, Paul says... <clears throat> Paul says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. In other words, as Paul says, the impact of Adam on those who were considered Adam's kids, humanity, is nothing more than a prophetic picture of what Christ would do for Adam's kids. And Christ would not only impact us as Adam impacted us, Christ the creator himself would do it, in the words of Paul, all the more. In verse 15, Paul says that the gift is not like the trespass. The free gift is not like the trespass. Get that. The gift was not a response to the trespass as if to pay it back. Paul says the gift is not an equal response to the trespass. The gift is greater than the trespass, therefore not only meets it, but supersedes it. And then if you go to verse 17, he says it even further. He says, if because the one man's trespass, death, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Much more surely will those who have received it and the gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through that one man. How backward is this? How backward is this thinking? We are so sure of our sin and our sin nature and our sin consciousness that we build entire systems on sin in our day and age. Think about it. The gospel as we know it, if it's like most of us grew up, is built not on the foundation of Christ, it's built on the foundation of sin. Most of the gospel that you and I know start out with 
how sinful you are or how far you are or how evil you are or how separated you are. And God had to respond to it. And that's the the entirety of the gospel that most of us have been introduced to that is being preached from most places and platforms right now at this very moment is built on sin. And the more, here's what's interesting. I'm going to read some of this in, in a second. The more you study, study early church history, the more you realize how far we've come from the early church. Because their gospel was not built on the foundation of sin. And why was it not built on the foundation of sin? Because Jesus had just come and dealt with sin. How dumb is that? That we build our gospel on a foundation that Jesus has, has done away with. And we do it because, if, we're, if we just be honest, this is no conspiracy, this is nothing like that, it's just real. But we do it because sin is fearful. Hellfire and brimstone is fearful. Y'all know, right? I've told the jokes about the Halloween, you know, Halloween's coming up, right? So I've told the jokes, you know, we used to do these, I'm sure most of y'all have been through them, where you'll go through, I don't even remember what they're called, but anyway, you'll go through the church, you know, you, you see all these people like drinking beer and cussing and, you know, all this stuff, and then they get to the end of it, they're all thrown in hell, and, you know, and then there's the pastor standing there, you know, with a black suit on, you know, all that stuff, and says, if, do you want to experience this? Then repeat a prayer. Of course thousands of people are going to repeat a prayer. I would repeat it too. You know what I mean? In fact, I probably did a thousand times, you know? Like, my Lord, I sure don't want to go there. We used to have play. Uh, we didn't do this, but we, we used to go to plays. Y'all probably remember this. Um, at, at, I forget. I don't even remember what the church was called. But anyway, and there would be a whole play of, again, people drinking and uh, cussing or you know, watching football or whatever. And Harry Potter, you know. Um, I think there was one where somebody had a Harry Potter book, and they got thrown in hell, you know. And uh, <laughs> it's... <laughs> And um, uh, so anyway, anyway, but there would be, you know, this big old bucket over here and that would be hell. There'd be this big old thing over here, heaven. And depending on like what you did, most, most of them were thrown in hell. But there was a couple, maybe one that was like, that made it into heaven. And it's like, now we're going to repeat a prayer. And this is what our prayer. Everybody bow your heads, close your eyes. If you leave this place tonight and you walk outside and a bus is coming down the street 100 miles an hour and you get hit by it and you die, where will you be? Huh? You know? Record number. And this, if there was social media back then, we'd post pictures of all the hands raised. Record number of salvations. We've never seen this. is a move of God, right? This is what we... Now, now y'all laugh. This happens today. We might not say, you know, heaven or hell, whatever, but boy, we'll get that music going and it'll be, you know, we'll have just the right vibe. The lights will be set just right. The fog will start rolling in. Uh, y'all, y'all know, you know, this is real. Fog, fog start rolling in, right? And we'll say, today, today is your day. Today is your day. You've got an assignment on your life, you know, whatever. And, right? And this is, this is what we, but all of it, to be clear, all of it is built on sin and a response to sin. It's really interesting. How backwards is that? It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's crazy to me that the gospel that we know is built on this, but the good news is that Jesus did something for us in this idea of the gospel that most of us grew up in. The good news is that Jesus did something for us in response to sin. The good news is that Jesus redeemed our eternity if we do not sin. Etc., etc., etc. And none of our gospel is built simply on the foundation of just Jesus. Jesus himself, for most of us, is a footnote to Adam and sin for the American gospel. It's sin, it's evil, it's Adam, it's the fall, it's original sin, it's the doctrine of separation, it's the doctrine of eternal conscious torment, and all these other doctrines that we have. And then somewhere down in here, oh yeah, Jesus. I mean, this is, and this is a stretch, and I might get some pushback on this, but I'm okay with that. This is, this is not just all. This is anti-New Testament and early church gospel. For the early church, the gospel is built on Christ alone, and Adam and sin both are at best a footnote to the accomplishment of love and desire in Christ. So, for example, this is, this is church father Irenaeus, who outside of Athanasius is my favorite church father, this guy. Brilliant. 
But this is what he said. Listen to this. He says, The incarnation of God in Jesus Christ is not merely a response to sin. On the contrary, God's initial purpose, so his first purpose, included being united with humankind. What has happened because of sin is that the incarnation has taken on the added purpose of offering a remedy for sin and a means for defeating Satan. But even before the incarnation and from the very moment of the first sin, God has been leading humanity closer to communion with the divine. For this reason, God curses the serpent and the earth in Genesis, but only punishes the man and the woman. At the very moment of the fall, listen, God is working for the redemption of the human race. That's Irenaeus. This is what Karl Barth says. He says, what is Christian is secretly but fundamentally identical with what is human. Okay, this is Gregory of Nyssa, who was um, a big part of the Nicene Creed. He wrote this in his writings, The Life of Moses. He says this, Moses' vision of God began with light. Afterwards, God spoke to him in a cloud. But when Moses rose higher and became more perfect, he saw God in the darkness. And then he goes on to say, for us on the other side of Christ, our call is to not only see God in the light, in the best of us, but it's to see God planted in the darkness in the worst of us. I, I mean, I could go on and on and on. In fact, I'll do that. Just, just to give you a little. This is what uh, Douglas Campbell, uh, who is the uh, professor of New Testament at Duke University, who is not an older guy, he's... he's still alive, uh, teaching today, but this is what he says. God created humanity lovingly, electing them into existence and fellowship, preserving them through their self, the, or excuse me, through their self-destructive hostility and foolishness and refusing to let any of them go as seen especially in the great outreach of the mission to the pagan nations, Gentiles. God loves humanity as much as he loves Israel. Israel standing at a, at a, as a remnant and hence as a saving sign in relation to the rest of humanity, just as the believing Jewish remnant stands as a sign to the rest of Israel. God's son came to save the human race, undoing the destruction of Adam, not just the destruction of Jews. Hence, it seems that exactly the same rationale should apply. God will not let us go. In the contrast between divine benevolence and human recalcitrance, Fought out in the space that is the human race, God will always win. And we can be confident in view of this that God is really a covenantal God, committed to us permanently and irrevocably. If God is a covenantal God, how many of you in this room, just by human rationale, if I came to you, Jordan's not here today because Veda has a cough. If I came to you today and I said, Jordan didn't do the dishes last night. Man, that really got on my nerves. So I'm leaving her. Right? I would, number one, probably be fired, you know, okay? But number two, y'all all think I'm crazy. Why, now, 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 think, think. Why, why is that crazy, though? Huh? Because, see, listen, that being crazy, the rationale for that is built on the foundation that you know I entered into a covenant with her. And on the basis of my covenant with my wife, separation is illegal. Now, if God is a covenantal God and we have a gospel that God not just will, God joyfully wipes his hands clean of us the moment we mess up, we have to question not only the gospel, not only do we have to rip out everything I just read in the New Testament, not only do we have to erase all the early church fathers, not only do we have to erase all the early church theologians and not early church theologians, not only do we have to erase the Greek language, not only do we have to erase the Old Testament and the Hebrew language and the Jewish idea of God, but we have to remind ourselves constantly to the law that we've bought into 
that not only is God not loving, not only is God not for us, but it's just for him to be so because at our core, we don't believe God is a covenantal God. Because if God was covenantal, our sin, listen, our sin is not more powerful than God's yes to covenant with us. Which is exactly, see, see, now, now, ready, wineskin. I can feel it. You feel it? You feel your wineskin stretching? You're not going to admit it, but I feel it. Okay? What? And, you know, I, I, can ju- I can hear it now. I can hear it online. I can hear the typing right now. I can hear it. What about Job? What about Joshua? What about, you know what I'm saying? Lord, and I'll teach that one day when we're ready. When we're ready for that, I'll teach on that. We're not ready. Um, but as we are allowing this, this gospel to stretch us, we have to sit back and ask ourselves, what view of, for example, my neighbor, not your physical neighbor that lives next to you. I'm talking about like my neighbor, my people around me. What view do I have of the people around me that does not fit within God's revelation of covenant and love and identity and reconciliation. Now, again, the love of God is just to reiterate this, because I always, anytime I preach anything like this, people will say, you know, saying that we should just accept everything. No, okay, that's not love. That, you know what I mean? That's not love at all, okay? I'm not talking about a love that's like this. That's not love. This is passivity. No, God's direct, okay? But what I'm saying is, is God will not give up. God will not give up. I could go on. And I know I've been harping on this point for about two and a half years, okay? But it's necessary. It's necessary that we tear out the foundation of any parts of our gospel and faith and rebuild it on the foundation of Christ alone if it is not. And then, at that point, and only at that point, we can come to grips with the ancient faith that shatters every notion and possibility of God separating himself from us. The story of God is not us running, or excuse me, the story of God is not running away from humans and a select few keeping up with him. The story of God is God running toward humans, even in our running, because it is God's pursuit of us and not our pursuit of God that brought redemption and reconciliation to Adam's seed. All we are to do is repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change how we think and come into agreement with the truth that you are his. You are joined in union with God because he chose to prove his love to you in Christ. Martin Laird writes this in his book, uh, Into the Silent Land. I'm almost done. I would call Matt up here, but Matt's not here, so we're going to end it without it. Okay? No moody music, no lights, and no fog. Just us. Okay? This is what Martin Laird says. When the mind comes into its own stillness and enters what he calls the silent land, the sense of separation goes. Union is seen to be the fundamental reality and separateness a highly filtered mental perception. He says, when your mind stops racing, with all the religious thoughts and ideas, and this is how it's always been, et cetera, et cetera. And you enter into the silent land, the contemplative place. When you get there, only one reality makes sense, and it's union. And any idea of separation is found there to be fundamentally false. What parts of you still believe separation? I, I want you, what parts of you still believe in separation? What parts of you haven't fully been embraced by the gospel of complete acceptance and union? Take heart. This isn't some new gospel message that's relevant for today. If I was trying to do that, I'd give you a lot more sin and a lot more evil. Okay? I'd preach on what the Democrats are doing and what the Republicans are doing and 
all the other popular stuff that people are trying to talk about right now because we're about to get into election season, God help us. You know, right? I mean, that's what we were talking about this morning. It's like, it's pretty bad that our, here's our, our, our choices are, if this person doesn't go to jail, he might win. If this person, you know, I'm, it's just like, Lord, like, I mean, you know? And, um, but, so, so, so if we were trying to do this relevant, you know, new age thing, I would, you'd leave here being happy as a lark because I'd tell you what, where to invest your money. Kingdom? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, right? I tell you about your assignment. God, that is such a, such a click word nowadays. Your assignment, your assignment, your assignment, your assignment. Like we're in a test. Like we're taking a test. You got an assignment. If you pass the test, you get a passing grade. If you don't, you know what I mean? Your assignment, your assignment, your assignment. God, what is my assignment? Here's your assignment. One thing I ask, this I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon the beauty of his face and inquire in his temple. There's your assignment. Praise God. Have fun. You know what I mean? What, do I, what else do I do? What's my calling? Here's your calling. One thing I ask, and this shall I seek, to dwell in the house. That doesn't mean you don't have purpose. It means you don't have purpose until you get that. You know what I mean? If you're trying to do anything else in life apart from a, a baptism in the union of the true and real gospel as seen in Christ, it, it ain't going to work. Because when you start to do things and you feel like a failure, if you're joined in union, there is no risk or possibility of failure. You know, like if I'm not doing this out of union, I might look at a room that's a little bit bigger than it was when we started, but not that much bigger and say, well, boy, man, I have failed as a pastor, man. We're not exploding at the seams because that's what Babylon would say. Or I could say. I have succeeded because six years into it, I'm just as passionate about the secret place and the one thing as I was when we first started. And if that's all I get, and if that's what remains of me for the next 20 years, I win. If I'm happy, I win. If I love my daughter and my wife, we win. So what parts of you still believe this? This is the ancient way. This is the gospel of the early church. This is the gospel of the martyrs, the apologists, the confessors. This is the gospel of the reformers and the theologians of old. This is the gospel that we are being invited into for our sake as the first fruits of the repentance of the church at large, the changing of thinking. God will have the final say. It is finished. Death and sin no longer have a hold on us. Love and reconciliation do have a hold on us. Now sink deep into that. The deeper you sink into reconciliation, the lighter you'll feel as it relates to the weight of sin. I, you'll, that's, I, I, it drives me nuts when people, well, brother, you teach too much grace. People are just going to see it as a license to sin. I have not found that to be the case. <laughs> you know, I know I've said this a lot, but like, you know, when you're talking to people, you, I'm sure this is probably happening. Some of you will probably start talking about every, with friends or, you know, or coworkers or whatever, some of the stuff that we've been walking through. And it never fails, family members, never fails that one of the first things people say is, well, don't you think that'll just get people licensed to do whatever they want? Right? I was talking to a pastor this week who, um, who just quit, uh, quit, resigned from the church he was uh, pastor at because he's gotten so baptized in the gospel that he couldn't feel like a poser because his church refused to allow him to preach what he felt and believed so he just quit because he couldn't be a poser anymore you know what I mean which is um, I, I, I told him bro if I had the money I'd hire you right now he's don't have the money yet one day um, but I met with him this week and that's what he said he was like we were talking about the tithe, and, and we were talking about different things. And I said, that's, exact, that's a great example of it. In the New Testament, there is no law anywhere in the New Testament that says you have to tithe to be right with God. Right? None at all. So, so if you didn't give another dime to the Lord, you're just as loved. Right? Now, if that causes you to say, oh, man, that's amazing. I don't have to give anymore. You, don't, you haven't understood the gospel, right? Jesus says those who have been forgiven more are more thankful, right? So for me, I told him, I was like, if you just go back in our you know, financial records as a family, my personal family, I was like, 
I can point you to the moment when the Lord started rewiring how I think, and our giving from that point to today has done nothing but go up. And it's not because the law says you have to do this. It's because I've been set free from a law that limits what I can give to the Lord to 10%. Right? I'm not limited anymore. So I can blow way past 10% and I can start to say, what do I need to lavish on the one who has lavished it all upon me? Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, it's, and it's in all areas of our lives. And so what, I just I want to ask that and then I'll pray. What, what parts of us, you can be thinking about this this week, even as we pray, what parts of us are still holding on to some of those old ideas of, well, you just don't know. You just don't know the thoughts that I have. You just don't know what I've done. You know, what parts of us are still holding on to an idea that God cannot stare that stuff in the face and still love you? Because I tell you, I'm a dad. I can look at my daughter, Veda, and despite what she's done, no matter how many times she's disobeyed us, no matter how, which is very few, she's great. But no matter how many times she's talked back to us, which is, I don't know if that's ever happened, very rarely. But no matter how many times that happens, my love for her never changes. In fact, in the moments when she is most under distress, my love for her actually grows. So what, what parts of us does not believe? What parts of us believe that a, that a human dad can be greater and more full of love than the Father in heaven? God proves his love for us. Lord, I thank you for this day. Um, God, I thank you for uh, just, uh, I thank you for a family that is willing to be stretched. And God, I thank you that we have a, a, a blessing of curiosity where we're allowed to discover the ancient path. And the ancient path doesn't scare us, it gives us life. That's huge. I mean, this is, that's literally what Jesus meant when he talked about new wine and new wineskins. And then as we receive it and it begins to mature in us, suddenly the world looks a little different. Everything around us looks different. I mean, talking about calling and dreams and all that stuff, all that stuff looks different as that new wine begins to mature in us and stretch in us. I want you to picture this. Me and Veda, Friday, we, uh, me being the person I am, <laughs> um, we, we did some interpretation of poems. And so I would read a poem, and then I would ask her what she thought it meant to her. I wouldn't correct her. You know, it was just a, an exercise to think about interpreting creativity. And, um, and she's six, so some of you might be like, my Lord. Um, when I was six, I was coloring. But anyway, and um, so we did this. And the story that I, I chose, and really the Lord chose, because it kind of just popped up on my phone as we were starting to do this, was the Robert Frost poem, The uh, Two Roads. What, what is it called? Two Roads? Um, Road Less Travel By. Thank you. Road Less Travel By. And so we're reading this, and I'm listening to, we listen to it on audio. Um, the, art, the artistry of this poem. And it gets to the end, to the part that I've mentioned thousands of times, where it says, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I chose the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. So we started talking about that, and I asked her what it meant, and you know, she had some great stuff, you know, really great stuff. But I thought about this as we were talking about the story, is that when you choose a path that hasn't been traveled by, or, or let me say it like this, there's a path there, okay? So two roads, just picture this as your eyes are closed. There are two roads that are diverging, which tells us a couple of things. Number one, somebody had cleared that path in the past because it's a path, right? But the fact that it hadn't been traveled by, the fact that it had been covered with leaves and you know, overgrowth and all this other stuff, because of that, it had once been traveled by, but it had not been traveled by in a very long time. And in the poem, he says, I chose the one that was once traveled by, but has not been lately. And by choosing that path, that has made all the difference.
And I want to, I want to, I think Robert Frost, I don't even know what he thinks about him. I don't even know if he believes in God. I don't, I don't know. Maybe he does. Hopefully he does. But what I do know is, is I don't know if there's a better picture of where we are in our society today. We're in this fork in the road, two roads diverging in a yellow wood. There's one path that everybody's walked down. It's well trodden. But then there is another ancient path that hasn't been walked in a long time. And the only way, the only thing that is required of us to take that ancient path is to simply start going in a direction that the few are going. Is to start going in a direction that is other than the majority. And that will make all the difference. So God, we honor you today. And I believe that us taking a road less traveled by is going to become the road that everybody travels by in the future because of our ability to trust you enough to clear it out. And so we love you in this place, honor you in your name. Amen.